This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. All right, well, let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. All right, so this is 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 14. The apostle writes, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me, For this reason, I've sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power." For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Well, we come to uh, what ends up being the conclusion of the first major section. You might remember, I forget how long ago, but we were in chapter 1. And starting chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 4, verse 21, that makes up the the first major section. Next week, if we finish this tonight, we'll actually be in chapter 5, which is the start of a new section. Uh, 5 and 6 are a unit, and Paul deals with some very unsavory things in those uh, two chapters. But this is the end, this is the conclusion, if you will, of the first major section. And what Paul wants the Corinthians to do is, on the one hand, he he wants them to think correctly about the gospel. He wants them to think correctly about the message of the cross. And this was, of course, a big problem. It's, It's not that the Corinthians had perverted the gospel like the Galatians had done. It's that the Corinthians thought that they now had gone beyond the gospel, and in going beyond the gospel, they were they had set their sights now on higher and better things. Paul's whole point is there's nothing higher and nothing better than the message of the cross. And it's nothing that you actually go beyond. By the way, the minute that you think that you've gone beyond the message of the cross, the minute you think you've gone beyond the gospel, you are going down the wrong road. The goal in the Christian life is not to get beyond the gospel or beyond the message of the cross. The goal of the Christian life is to have our roots go deeper and deeper and deeper into the message of the cross. That's what Paul wants the Corinthians to see. For all of their boast of spirituality and wisdom, they thought that they had gotten beyond the ABCs, so to speak. But Paul's not only concerned that they think correctly about the message of the cross, he wants their lives to be transformed by the message of the cross. So for Paul, this is more than just be orthodox in your understanding of the gospel. It is think correctly about the gospel, but then also let the gospel transform your life. And so the Corinthians are in a bad way, and Paul is doing his level-headed best under the inspiration of the Spirit to get them reoriented to the cross and then to have their lives shaped around the message of of the cross. And so this final paragraph does a number of things. First of all, it prepares them for an upcoming visit. Now, we could spend quite a bit of time on uh, what happens between this letter and 2 Corinthians, and it was a mess. Um, Paul is intending another visit. In fact, you, you see it clearly when he says, Um, 
verse 19, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. His desire was to get back to Corinth. Now, he's going to send Timothy, and I'll just, uh, I'll just ruin the end of the story for you. Uh, Paul does go back, and when he goes back, it does not turn out exactly the way that he thinks it's going to turn out. And Paul is actually um, publicly humiliated in his visit back to the Corinthians. We know this because of first or Second Corinthians. And I might talk a little bit more about that later. But Paul's wanting to prepare them for a coming visit. And in a sense, he's kind of preparing them for the rest of the letter too because he's going to be correcting them at a number of points throughout the rest of this letter. Uh, but what, what I think that uh, this paragraph in a sense best represents is the idea of this strong concluding appeal to that first section. So think about this as sort of like the, 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 the conclusion or the wrap up of a sermon. What Paul is trying to do is, is he is making this uh, concluding appeal. He is imploring, he is exhorting, he is warning, and he's doing it as their father in the faith. In fact, one uh, commentator calls this last paragraph a breathtakingly bold conclusion to this section of the letter. Paul leaves all niceties to, to aside, he leaves all subtleties aside, and now he is actually concluding in a way that is both loving and yet very firm. Now, Paul uses the language throughout this, this final paragraph of um, being their father in the faith. Uh, one of the things that Paul uh, did and did often was he would use this parental language, okay? But not just as a father. Sometimes he used motherly language as well. In fact, you have both images in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 where he says, we became gentle among you as a nursing mother and then we exhorted you and encouraged you as a father, Right, And so Paul was, was incredibly fond of using this parental imagery, and I think that he was fond of using it simply because it best represented to him the way that he saw the relationship with the churches that he planted and the people that he evangelized and was used to bring into the kingdom. Now here, in this final paragraph, the whole imagery of being their father, is extended, all right? So let's take a look, first of all, at verses 14 and 15, where Paul's, Paul gives us the very purpose for writing this, at least this first section. He says it negatively at first. He says, I don't write these things to shame you. Now, your, your first instinct might be, if you've kind of been tracking with Paul's argument, is... Well, that's exactly what you were trying to do, Paul, is you were trying to shame them. And really, when, when Paul says this, what he's, what he's meaning to say is, I didn't write these things. Now, it could be chapter 4, verses, um, uh, let's say, this, this final section, these things, 4, 6 through 13. Or he could actually be going back and thinking about the entirety of the section, 110 through uh, uh, up to the present. Um, but regardless of what he has in mind for writing these things, he actually is, is simply noting that, that my ultimate goal is not to bring shame or embarrassment to you. It's very interesting because he's going to talk about uh, tutors, which we'll, we'll, I'm going to argue we should think of it differently than a tutor. Um, in Paul's day, people that were wealthy would hire slaves or use their slaves to be their, um, what you could call their child minders. Okay? People that they would um, uh, assign to watch over their children. And in fact, they were the tutors, the pedagogues, 
Um, but don't think of somebody that was like tutoring them in math or something. This was usually a guy that carried a stick around and made sure the kid did what the kid was supposed to do. And sometimes um, one, of the, one of the motivators in, a, in a, a culture like Corinth was you motivated somebody to do what you wanted them to do through shame, Okay, so ancient Near East is sometimes uh, identified as a shame culture, just like, for instance, China today. And the idea of being shamed or publicly embarrassed is worse than death itself. And so it proved to be an incredibly strong motivator. Okay, and so the, these these um, child minders, the ones that were in charge of these children, oftentimes would try to seek to publicly embarrass them or humiliate them in order to get them to do what they were supposed to do. And Paul is saying, listen, um, I'm not standing over you with a switch ready to just smack you and publicly shame you. For sure, I've pointed out some of your shameful behavior, and of course, he's used some pretty harsh sarcasm. But I think Paul's point is actually pretty simple, and that is, if you think shaming you is my ultimate goal, you don't understand why I'm writing to you. I'm not writing to you just to make you feel bad. That would be a goal that would be far too small for Paul. By the way, he does something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where he says, when I wrote to you, talking about the severe letter, which we don't have, when I wrote to you, I didn't write to you to cause you pain, although I did. But the pain, in a sense, was it had a, a bigger goal, and that bigger goal, of course, was repentance. And so here, I think the same thing could be said. I wasn't writing to shame you. That wasn't my ultimate goal. I know that these things may be convicting. I know that there may be a level of embarrassment, but that's not my ultimate goal. It is so much bigger than that. And then Paul turns around and he says, but as beloved children, I admonish you. So I'm not just some guy that's, that, that's, that's just ready to discipline you and to hammer you. I'm actually uh, treating you as beloved children and I'm admonishing you. Sometimes in our uh, hypersensitive culture, people don't know how to take convicting preaching. They, they look at it as a, like as a personal insult. Or the goal is to just make me feel bad. And, and, and really, the idea is, is, is not just to make people feel bad at all. There's always a higher goal. And so whenever there's conviction, conviction actually has, um, uh, conviction is just penultimate. There's something greater than just conviction. Because conviction in and of itself is, is meaningless unless it leads you to repentance. And so we're so, we're so hypersensitive today. You ever notice how sensitive people are today? Right? It's like an epidemic, right? Everybody's so thin-skinned, you can't even, you can't even make good old-fashioned ethnic jokes anymore, okay? Um, which, I mean, doesn't stop me from making Chinese jokes when Jason's around, but he's, uh, in, he takes it in a good spirit, I think. But Paul says, you're my children, I'm admonishing you. Now, what he has in view here, I've admonished you as beloved children, is in a sense, this is, this is kind of Paul's language for discipleship, okay? The parent-child model, right? It's kind of interesting. You get to the New Testament epistles, and guess what word you don't see anymore? You don't see the word disciple anymore, okay? Um, there's probably reasons for that, but that doesn't mean the concept is missing. The concept actually just takes on a different metaphor, and that is here, at least, the imagery is parent-child. And, of course, for Paul, this is intimate. This is personal. 
Paul was not the kind of guy that was just, you know, uh, well, what I'm doing is I'm going out, I'm planting churches, I'm preaching the gospel, and, and, and I'm keeping track of all the numbers because at the end of the day, it's the numbers that matter. For Paul, that was anathema. What mattered were the people. That's what mattered. It was the souls of the people. It was the names, the faces of the people. You read Paul's uh, farewell address to the elders, um, the Ephesian elders as they met at Miletus. And he says, you know how for three years I was with you and from house to house and with tears admonishing you face to face. That's how Paul ministered to people. Now he does use the word admonish here, which is a strong word. Uh, It's the word nutheteo, you might know. The phrase nuthetic counseling, that's where we get the uh, phrase. Nutheteo means to admonish, to sternly warn. This isn't, um, this isn't puppy and butterfly language. This is the language of rebuke. It's the language of uh, criticism given in love. And then Paul says this. He says, you may have... Many, literally, tens of thousands, myriads of tutors in Christ. (laughs) Do you think they had tens of thousands? No, I doubt it. It's hyperbole, okay? You may have countless tutors in Christ, now, here's, here's our word again, and um, New American Standard says um, uh, tutors, what does ESV say? Guides, okay. Nobody, nobody's going to do this probably the way that, um, now some, some of the commentators think that Paul's just using the term, so listen, it's, it's, it's pedagogos, right? So we get our word pedagogy or pedagogue from this. But understand that in Paul's day, the, uh, the pedagogos was not um, the guy that showed up to your house. So when I was 14 years old, my lung collapsed and I had a big giant cyst on my lung they had to take out. And so I had to miss school for three months. And so the school district sent this guy named Mr. Green to be my tutor. Okay, And he'd show up at 1 o'clock, which was the worst time. He was this big, big, heavy guy, and he always smelled like garlic. And um, it was absolutely awful, and he would tutor me for three hours every day at, from, from 1 o'clock until like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I hated it, and he was awful, and he smelled terrible, and he was unpleasant, um, but he was just sent by the school district to help me with math and geography and science and all the other stuff, right? And so we think of tutor and we think of some guy, you know, some elderly lady that sits down and says, no, sweetie, two plus two is four, not six. And uh, now here's, here's the way that it would work in Paul's day. A pedagogos was first of all a slave, wasn't uh, somebody with a bachelor's in elementary education. They were a slave. And now, to be sure, a trustworthy slave, because you just didn't entrust your kids to just any old slave. It had to be a trustworthy slave. And that slave was in charge of supervising education and behavior of the master's child. Okay? So here was this guy, and he would take Junior to school, He would make sure Junior did his homework. Now, the irony was is that most of the pedagogos, the pedagogoi, they were typically illiterate. Now, how well do you think he's going to help Johnny with his little reading primer? But you know what he could do? Stand there with a stick and make sure that he did his lessons. Now, he could be doing them all wrong for all he knew, but as long as he did his lesson, right? And so the kid got out of line, 
behavior-wise, guess what, guess what he would do? Guess what he had full permission to do? Beat the tar out of the kid. Okay? And so the idea was is that this was a, a guy that was, was a supervisor who, was a, who, who actually accomplished what he needed to accomplish with the use of the rod. Okay? By the way, this same word is the word that Paul uses in Galatians 3.24 where he says the law was a pedagogos to lead us to Christ. I've suggested just translating the word as a corrections officer. That's far, that's, that's far more accurate than like a teacher, okay? This is the idea of the, um, the supervision that is enforced with the rod. In fact, one commentator, David Garland, he says uh, of, the, of the supervisor, he was caricatured for his severity as a stern taskmaster. And so in first century art, drawings, paintings, uh, paintings on vases and so forth, he was frequently portrayed as having a stick in his hand. In Greek plays, he was often portrayed as harsh and stupid. (laughs) But always falsely persuading themselves that they were incredibly knowledgeable. Now, one commentator thinks Paul is not really using the term here as a put-down. You could have myriads of these tutors in Christ. I actually think that Paul is in fact using it as a put-down, where the idea is, is that you have, you have ten, because he could have used instructor, he could have used teacher, he could have used a lot of other terms. Here you have a term that has a very distinct cultural connotation. In other words, what Paul's saying is, you could have tens of thousands of these um, people that supposedly lead you like the slave who's illiterate, stupid, and harsh, you think it's great. You think these guys are so good. By the way, that, that, that shouldn't surprise us that people are drawn to that kind of ministry. Just talked to a lady today goes to a church in California. Her and her family have been in this church for 15 years. And everybody that leaves is going to hell, is a traitor, and needs to be absolutely shunned. So you know what happens? People live in fear of ever leaving. They call the pastor uh, dad. So here's Paul. He says, you might have 10,000 pedagogoi. Sort of a funny picture, right? Here's the Corinthians. They think they're so smart, and they're just surrounded by 10,000 custodians brandishing beating sticks, (laughs) leading them in what? These higher ways of wisdom. Paul said, you could have 10,000, tens of thousands of those, but really, when you come right down to it, you don't have many fathers. Now, by the way, this is is an understatement. The idea is, surely you only have one father. And then Paul turns around, he says, and through the gospel, I birthed you. Now, that language, too, is is very Pauline. Um, He says, for instance, in Galatians chapter 4, he says, you know, he's he's bemoaning the Galatians, and he puts uh, what he's doing as being in labor with them again until Christ is formed in them. 
So Paul says, I birthed you through the gospel. What does Paul mean by that? Well, he means that he was the one that came and actually preached the gospel to them. He was the one that, that actually was, was the, the, the messenger, the herald who brought the good news of the gospel. And by the way, the I is absolutely uh, emphatic in this passage. And when he says, I birthed you through the gospel, the idea is, is that I'm the human instrument that came and brought the gospel to you, which God used to bring you the new birth. You know, and sometimes... We get so persnickety in our, in our language. And you'll say something about, you know, well, God really uh, blessed me. I was able to lead that person to Christ. And, you know, uh, those that have the, their theological T's all crossed with precision and theological I's all dotted with precision will say smugly, you can't lead anybody to Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, of course, that's true. But Paul uses the language of basically saying, I'm the human instrument through which the gospel was preached to you and you came to life. I led you to the Lord. I brought you into the kingdom through my gospel labors. I'm the one that did that. If you think back to chapter 3, he's the one that laid the foundation in, in Corinth, the foundation of Jesus Christ. And there's no other foundation that can be laid. Paul actually talked like this regularly. He'll talk about Timothy as his true child in the faith. He'll talk about, uh, in, in the letter to Philemon, he'll talk about how he, is, how he gave birth to Philemon as a father in the faith. Here, there's, I, I think there's got to be a contrast between these myriads of, 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 of corrections officers but you only have one father. You could have a whole myriad of people that are leading you and teaching you and guiding you, but there's only one that actually preached the gospel to you in such a way that you came into the kingdom. And Paul actually sees that as forging a special relationship and a special bond with them that these other people did not have. So here's a question for you. Could Paul actually have a godly jealousy because of that relationship? The answer, by the way, is answered by Paul himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he actually tells them that he is jealous for them since he was the one who betrothed them to Christ. He saw that relationship as a special relationship. He he, he didn't just look at these people as stats or numbers or just as a church in in some sort of ambiguous way. He looked at these people as, as those that he poured his life into and did so in such a way that there was this inexorable bond between him and them. And now the Corinthians are acting as if he's not their father in the faith. He's acting... They're acting as if these other guys really are the ones to take them to the greater heights. Paul says, you might have 10,000 of those guys, but there's only one of me. That brings us to Paul's exhortation in verses 16 and 17. Notice, therefore, I exhort you. (laughs) I exhort you. What? Be imitators of me. Okay, so quick poll here. How many of you would feel absolutely comfortable looking at another believer... And saying to them, 
I want to exhort you. Imitate me. Right. Some of you say that. We'd be like, are you kidding? Egads, no way. Paul says, be imitators of me. Now, does that sound a little egotistical? Let me just be honest. Does it sound a little egotistical? Be imitators of me. Well, I want to just point out a few things that might make this seem a little more understandable to us. First of all, you need to remember the first century context and um, converts that come to Christ from paganism, all right? Which, by the way, would, uh, for a lot of Paul's uh, converts, that would be a, a large bulk, right? You, you, had, you had some who were Jewish converts to Christ, and you had some who were proselytes, that is, those who were Gentiles but who had embraced Judaism, right? They were proselytes, and they would convert, but they don't make up the bulk of those that are in Pauline churches at all. The vast majority of, of, of new Christians in Pauline churches uh, were, were those that came out of the mystery religions and, and came out of a pagan background. And, and so think about this. What, what in the world did they know about Christianity? Certainly, the proselytes and the Jewish converts had had an advantage because they'd been exposed to the Old Testament and, and they'd been exposed to the true God of Israel and so forth. But for the most part, those the, the, the pagans that were converted, did, did they have any Christian heritage to draw from? How many of you were raised in Christian homes and saw Christian parents and Christian grandparents? And not that they did everything perfectly, but you had an idea of what a Christian was. Here are these, here are these pagans that are coming. They have no Christian heritage. They, they actually have, for the most part, absolutely no precedence for seeing how the faith is to be lived out. Do you know what the pagans had? For instance, those in Corinth, those that weren't converted out of the synagogue... They had Paul's words and life. And that was it. They couldn't go down to the Christian bookstore and buy how to live the Christian life. They couldn't go down to the Christian bookstore and, 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 and pick up a little booklet on how to do your devotions. They, 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 they didn't have radio to listen to. I mean, all they knew about Christianity was what they had heard and seen in Paul and his companions. And so Paul says, I am your example. So you be imitators of me. Now, how long did the Corinthians have Paul? Well, they had him for 18 months. They had him for 18 months where they they listened to him preach and they watched him live. Now, I want to ask the question, is it egotistical for Paul to say, I exhort you, be imitators of me, and I want to say with a resounding, no, it's not egotistical at all, considering Paul's incredible humility. In fact, in this very chapter, look at uh, starting in verse 10, So so think of this, be imitators of me. Verse 10, we're fools for Christ's sake. Be imitators of me. We're weak. Be imitators of me. We're without honor. Be imitators of me. To this present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated. We're homeless. Be imitators of me. We toil working with our own hands. Be imitators of me. When we're reviled, we bless. Imitate that. When we're persecuted, we endure. Imitate that. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. Imitate that. 
We've become the scum of the world. Join us in being the scum of the earth. Last week, after preaching this passage, I'm leaving and somebody says, See you, scumbag. <laughs> God bless you too, scumbag. So this is, this is hardly egotistical. When Paul says, imitate me, model what you see in me, this is what he could say they saw in him. Right? It's the Corinthians that actually thought they'd already arrived. It's the Corinthians that thought they were already kings. It's the Corinthians that thought they were already satisfied. And Paul says, you need to, you need to imitate me. And this isn't some sort of veiled pride with like, um, um, imitate my humility and how I've attained it. Right? This is, I can say to you that I've lived the Christian life consistently in front of you, and so imitate me. You know, as parents, don't you want to be able to say, you know, um, our walk with Christ has not been perfect, but what you've seen, what you've seen in your mother and father's faith, what you've seen in our sincerity what you've seen in the way that we've tried to shape our lives, you imitate that. That's what Paul's saying. And of course, for Paul, the ultimate goal is not imitation of Paul, it's imitation of Christ. Because in this very same epistle, he's going to say what? Imitate me as I do what? Imitate Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. You have to understand, in the first century, uh, rabbis would have disciples who would practice the art of imitation. And um, there, there's a great book, The Imitation of Jesus, uh, by Michael Green. Uh, read it years and years ago. And in, in, in the Jewish context, the idea was, is that you followed a rabbi around and you did everything that he did. This wasn't about... This wasn't about so much ethics and doctrine. This was, oh, rabbi so-and-so blows his nose with his left hand. Okay? So blow your nose with your left hand. Okay? Um, you remember in Young Frankenstein, Walk This Way? Uh, that was the idea. Some of, you are, some of you are just way, way too young for that even to be a relevant illustration. But some of you do remember it and walk this way and of course walking exactly the same way. And so this so Paul's whole goal is not to just say, "Hey, mimic me." That's not what he's saying. Imitate me as I imitate Christ because he could turn around and say in Ephesians 5:1 and 2, "Be imitators of God as beloved children, walking in love just as Christ loved us." and gave himself up as an offering, a pleasing aroma to God. So, he turns around and then he says this, for this reason I sent Timothy to you. So what reason do you think he's talking about? (laughs) I exhort you, be imitators of me, for this reason I sent Timothy to you. In other words, I'm sending Timothy to you, to help you, and why do they need help? <laughs> because Timothy's going to have to remind them. Okay, Now, for this reason, I sent Timothy to you. Now, I just remind you, Timothy ends up being the poster child, or the model child, or the favored child, who imitates his father in the faith. Think of all, actually, the wonderful things that Paul says of Timothy throughout his letters. I mean, he could say in, in Philippians that I have, I have no one like him who is a kindred spirit, right? I mean, so, so Paul looks at Timothy, and Timothy is, 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 in a sense, the model child of what it means to imitate Paul as Paul imitates Christ. And so um, it's hard to tell exactly when Timothy was sent, um, Some people think that he was sent with this letter. Other people think that he was sent um, following the letter. But regardless, um, 
Paul also knew the Corinthians would have a tendency to do what? Roll out the red carpet for Timothy? You know what Paul has to tell the Corinthians at the end in 1 Corinthians chapter 16? This is my paraphrase, 1 Corinthians 16, 10 and 11, something like this. And when Timothy gets there, would you guys please be nice to him? I know you Corinthians, roughnecks, mean. I mean, you're just, you're like a bunch of Baptists, so treat them nicely. All right, Presbyterians. Here's how Paul describes him. Who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord? So Timothy is not only this beloved child, right, in the Lord. He is faithful in the Lord. And what's interesting is what Paul's describing here about Timothy is that Timothy is actually one who is living, in a sense, within the lordship of Jesus, under the lordship of Jesus, He's one who is, who is actually a faithful child in the Lord. If you want to see what it's like to walk with Christ, if you want to see what it's like to, to live under Christ's lordship, Timothy's a good model, and Timothy in turn is going to remind you, notice, of my ways which are in Christ. Now, now notice his language, my ways. My ways of life as it pertains to walking with the Lord. Some of you will, you've been Christians long enough, you'll remember this. It used to be that when a person became a Christian, there was not only instruction in the Bible and what the Bible teaches, that is doctrine, But there was also instruction in how to live as a Christian. So when I was a new Christian in 1980, the thing that you did is you took a new Christian through a series of booklets by the navigators. And what what did that look like? Well, there were booklets, so heavy on Scripture memory, Right? Anybody familiar with navigators? Anybody go through navigator stuff? Right? So heavy, heavy, heavy on scripture memory. It would teach you how to pray. What a devotional time looked like. How to share your faith. And this was, this was considered, I mean, at least in, in the, the Christian context that I was in, this was considered actually normal is that when you became a Christian, the very first thing that you started to do is you started to learn what it was to live like a Christian, which meant that you did certain things that were distinctly Christian, like pray and read your Bible and have a quiet time and, and, and learn how to share the gospel and memorize and memorize and memorize lots of scripture, having those little scripture cards in the little, in the little baggie that, uh, you know, that you would just add to and add to as you memorized those scriptures. Paul, in a sense, is saying, I'm sending Timothy to you, and he's going to remind you of my ways, which are in Christ. In other words, for 18 months, I showed you what it was to walk with Christ and to live as a Christian, and Timothy's going to come, and he's going to remind you. And I would just just remind us that this has always been a huge part of the, the, the life of the church. Look at Puritan literature. Henry Scudder, The Christian's Daily Walk. Ever heard of it? Anybody heard of it? Oh, what a shame. Um, Lewis Bailey, Practical Piety. What are you guys doing, reading Harlequin romances? I mean, there's really good books out there. 
So Henry Scudder, the Christian's daily walk. And you know what Scudder does? Is he actually says, um, here are some really helpful things to help you in your daily walk with Christ. And he talks about all different kinds of things. The thing, I read this 25 years ago, and the thing that I remember most about Henry Scudder's uh, The Christian's Daily Walk is, he says, as you get dressed in the morning, as you put on each article of clothing, meditate on what it is to put on the full armor of God. In other words, just develop the discipline of mentally putting on the full armor of God as you're getting dressed. Who even thinks like that anymore? You know, in our own day, we've got, um, let's see, let's, let's try this. Donald Whitney, um, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Is that more familiar? Okay. All, all three of you. I'm so sad. Anyway, um, there's a new one. Uh, David Mathis from Desiring God, The Habits of Grace. Um, th- 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 these books actually just kind of focus on um, how to meditate on Scripture, what it is to actually have daily, what, what Whitney calls daily Bible intake, and what it is to pray, and uh, I mean, if fasting, all the disciplines, right? And, and, and here's, here's the sad thing, is that I have the, 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 the sinking or sneaking suspicion that all of this... Is like a lost art. Years ago, I was um, teaching a, a, a singles Bible study up at the lake, and uh, Charlie will rem- uh, and Ingram will probably remember this guy. He used to live up um, at State Line, and he was a painter. He had a big giant house up at State Line. And all the singles would gather there. And the first night that I was going to start leading the Bible study, I said to them, what we're going to do is we're going to go through Don Whitney's spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. And you would have thought that I just said, what we're going to do is we're going to study Mein Kampf. They looked at me. And the word that stood out to them was disciplines. That sounds like legalism to us. That sounds like legalism to us. Well, I find it really fascinating that it didn't sound like legalism to Paul, who could say in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. We have absolutely lost the idea of the spiritual disciplines, probably because we have lost the idea of discipline. Discipline is just a bad word for people. And what they think of is they, you know, they think of, you know, some monk standing there flagellating himself until he passes out. Or they think of, you know, somebody, you know, just meditating on a rock or something like that. And, and here's the reality is that the spiritual disciplines are actually a means of grace to help us grow. If you think it's legalistic to read your Bible regularly, you've got a big hang-up on what legalism is. If you think it's legalistic to make sure that you pray every day, then you've got a hang-up on what legalism is. Actually, it's, it, is, it is health. It's life, it's vitality. And Paul says, I'm sitting Timothy because there are certain ways in the Lord that I do that I want you to make sure you remember so that you do. And then here's, here's in a sense, the coup de grace to this argument. Just as I teach everywhere in every church. So here, here's, here's the thing we need to remember. Paul not only taught the gospel and taught doctrine, he taught people what it looked like to follow Christ. 
He not only wanted people who had straight doctrine, he wanted people to walk in a straight line with the gospel. I love what, uh, what Gordon Fee says. He says that Paul was long on behavioral concerns is writ large in his letters. He's never satisfied simply to change people's thinking. That is obviously important because the one, that is right behavior, flows out of the other, which is correct theology. But in Paul's letters, he never leaves them with a, quote, theological argument that does not have its corresponding ethical instruction. Do you know what, 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 what Fee is saying here is, is that Paul never taught theology separated from ethics. Just as it would be absolutely criminal for a Christian to teach ethics separated from theology, it's equally criminal to teach theology separated from ethics. In other words, the simple correlation is this. What you believe should affect the way you live. A.W. Tozer used to say a person can be as doctrinally straight as a gun barrel and as empty as one, too. People that can recite the catechism and people that can recite scripture after scripture and yet their life doesn't comport with what they say they believe, Paul would say, You're missing it. You're missing it. There's not just truth in Christ. There's a way in Christ. It's not just doctrine. It's life. And you know, you know, one of the, you know, one of our problems, and I just doubt I'm going to get through this tonight, but one of our problems is that we are so reactionary, right? You ever notice how reactionary Christians are? So, around the turn of the last century, okay, you had the modernists and the fundamentalists. And then the modernists, who actually were just ordinary old liberals, okay, the modernists actually were saying, what we think Christianity is all about is about Kingdom ethics. Living according to the ethical teaching of Jesus as summarized in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Living a Christian life that's one of charity and compassion. Now, you don't have to do that believing in the resurrection and the virgin birth and all that stuff. See, what Jesus really is concerned about is not that you believe in the virgin birth. What Jesus is really concerned about is that you love your neighbor as yourself. And so then the fundamentalists would say, oh, look at that. That is, you ready? That is the social gospel. And so here's our answer. All that really matters is that you believe in the virgin birth and the substitutionary atonement and the bodily resurrection and the second coming. That's all that really matters. Leave the ethics to the liberals. We've got the doctrine. And the liberals are like, we've got the ethics. Leave the doctrine to the grungy fundies. And you know what I think Paul would say? What God has joined together, let no man separate. You don't get to pick what you like better, the ethics or the doctrine. They're welded together. They're joined together. You can't separate them. What we believe theologically, what we, what we profess doctrinally should have an impact on the way that we live. And if it doesn't, it may well be because we don't really believe it. 
for Paul, there's no separation. Truth and ethics go hand in hand. Okay. Verse 18. Now, some of you have become puffed up as though I were not coming to you. (laughs) But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I'll find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Now, this is the beginning of the rebuke. Notice this. Some of you have become puffed up. I think Paul actually is making an understatement. I think he probably really wanted to say, I can't believe how many of you have become puffed up. But he's a little polite. Some of you have become puffed up as if I were not coming to you. So remember, what's the root Corinthian sin? Pride, okay? Pride. Arrogance, self-importance, right? And what Paul's saying is, this is, this is funny. You're acting like proud little kids who act as if dad's slipped out for a little while. You know, like your pets do, right? I have two dogs. Anybody want them? I have a Jack Russell Terrier. She is free, okay? She's got a microchip in her. She's, you can track her on GPS. She rolls a bowling ball, bounces a basketball. She's a total circus dog. You can have her. You know what happens every time I leave? I lock the front door. And there they are. They have their own little couch with the sheet on it so that that only that couch gets hair on it. And there they are, and they're just, you know, all mellow. I lock the door, and then you know what happens? I hear, crash, crash, bark, 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 jumping against the door, going bananas. And so you know what I do? I put the key back in, turn the door, open it, and, of course, what do they do? They scurry back and lay on the couch, right? Paul says, You're acting like I'm not going to be coming back. You're acting like puffed up, arrogant little kids that are acting like dad is gone and he's gone for a long time. So let's just do what we want to do. Now, it could be that some of the Corinthians had kind of said something like this. You know what? Paul said he was going to come earlier. He never did. Paul's just a, just a big old bag of gas. And, uh, and so let's just keep on doing what we're doing. But then Paul says, but I will come to you quickly if the Lord wills. In other words, I have every intention on getting back there to Corinth. And I'm going to visit quickly, which, by the way, he reiterates at the end of 16 five through nine, but he knew ultimately it was in the Lord's hands, whether he got there or not. And then he says this, and I love this. He says, and then I shall know not the word of the arrogant, but their power. In other words, when I come back and I see you face to face, so this, uh, the I, by the way, has this force of I will see for myself. I will find out for myself those who, those who claim to rule and reign and have power. I'm not going to worry about your empty words. I'm going to see who really has the power. So Richard Hayes says in a fuller quote that I alluded to earlier, In a breathtakingly bold conclusion to this section of the letter, Paul calls their bluff and threatens unnamed but ominous consequences. Don't you love that? Unnamed but ominous consequences if they persist in their rebellion. When he arrives, there's going to be a showdown. (laughs) And Paul says, here's why. The kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Real kingdom stuff is not just empty words. One commentator puts it like this. Any kingdom built on a foundation of empty words, which is like theological slogans and so forth, and prideful boasts will end up collapsing on itself. Paul says the kingdom of God is not in your empty boastful words. The kingdom of God is in power. It's kind of interesting what Paul is saying here. Maybe he's saying something like this. The kingdom of God is in power. That is in the power 
of the weakness of the cross. Some, some people think, actually, that what Paul's saying is the kingdom is in power. And, man, when I come, there's going to be some supernatural displays and people are going to be dropping dead like flies. Okay? For some reason, I don't think that that's actually consistent with what he has said so far. And so Paul says, I'm going to come and I'm going to see, I'm going to see if your words have any substance whatsoever because the kingdom of God is not just in your little proud, boastful words. The kingdom of God is in power. And when I come, I'm going to see what you're made of. And then Paul says, so what do you want? Dads, have you ever actually sat one of your little offsprings of Adam down and said, now listen, this can go one of two ways. Am I the only one that's done that? (laughs) This can go one of two ways. It's up to you how this goes. This can go well for you or this can be a very painful experience. It's up to you. That's what Paul's doing. As a father, he's saying, what do you want? That I come to you with a rod? That is, come to you in discipline. Okay? Or in the spirit of both love and gentleness. I think Paul's talking about the love and gentleness that actually comes from the Holy Spirit, which is an imitation of Christ himself. Paul says, it's all up to you how I come to you. If you repent of your pride, I can come to you in, 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 in the spirit of love and gentleness. But if you're going to continue in this kind of arrogant, rebellious pride, I know how to use the rod. As we will see, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So Paul, as a father, has done what? He's admonished them, he's exhorted them, he's reminded them. And he not only wants them to return to the message of the cross... But he wants them to begin to practice the message of the cross. What happens when people try to go beyond the cross? Does that affect the way they treat each other? And the answer is absolutely yes. The pride and the arrogance begins begins to create the haves and the have-nots and the divisions and the put-downs. And and, and Paul is saying, listen, you got to get back to the centrality of the cross because the cross will radically affect the way that you treat each other. Their big problem was because, because they had moved away from the cross, they didn't know what it was to be a church anymore. They didn't know what it was to be the people of God, to be the body of Christ. Paul calls him back to a humble, cross-centered life that manifests itself in the way they treat each other. It's the gospel itself, which is the very glue that holds the community of faith together Because the gospel not only has radical implications for me and my sin, but the gospel has radical implications for how I live and how I treat other people. A few years ago, I was in China. This was, I think this was the first time that I had gone and we were driving to the airport, which a drive to the airport in China is not like a drive to the airport here. Okay? You feel like you might well get to heaven before you get to the airport. And the pastor was asking me, he says, what is God teaching you these days? And without any hesitation, I said, I believe that the thing that God is teaching me the most is that how we treat each other within the body of Christ is a reflection 
of whether the Spirit of God is really at work among us. In other words, if you have the vertical right, it will inevitably flow out in the horizontal. To have a grasp of the gospel means that I treat people differently. That is the heart of Christian ethics. How we treat each other. And by Paul telling the Corinthians, in essence, get back to the basics, get back to the to the message of the cross and learn how the cross impacts our lives this way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage and we pray that we would, that we would embrace it for ourselves. Father, it's so easy for us to be critical of the Corinthians and, Lord, in a sense, to be Corinthian with the Corinthians. And we pray that you would help us not to be puffed up. We pray that you would help us to be men and women who are fastened to the cross and fixed on the Lord Jesus, filled with your spirit, and that that would manifest itself in the way that we love one another. And so, Father, we ask this for the glory of your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.